continue our study of the Ten Commandments with the Seventh Commandment. God says, you shall not steal. This is God's word. So one of the things I love about being a pastor here is when you talk back to me. Um, my job, my duty, and my joy is to every week get up here and tell you the truth from God's word. And I do my best to do that. But the reality is, with the 50 or 60 or so of you who sit here every week, I can't possibly know every single thing that's going on in your lives or in your hearts. And so sometimes I speak the truth to you, and it may be true, but it might not be perfectly or even well applied to your life. And so I love when you guys talk back to me, when you say, is that what you meant? How does that apply to this? Are you sure? Those are great things because as much as God has called me into the office of the holy ministry, I am still a sinner and fallible person, and I'm human. I can't possibly know those things. And so before we get into the, the teaching on the seventh commandment today, I wanted to take a moment to uh, just address two things that I heard from some of you after last week's sermon. This is the beauty of being a congregation that meets every week. Uh, one thing that somebody said was that when I study the Ten Commandments, I feel like I'm going to hell. And that's true, if the Ten Commandments is all you have. Right, like the Ten Commandments is given to us to totally dismantle any sense that we are good, or even better than most, or kind of getting there. The Ten Commandments is supposed to cut us all off at the knees and make us realize that we are not worthy of God in any way. In fact, if you come out of the Sunday's studying the Ten Commandments and you don't think that I have no chance with God by his law, you missed it. Every single Sunday, you should walk out of here saying, I have no hope in myself. But of course, you, also, you do have hope in Jesus. You have the message that we've been hearing week after week, that God is your God, not because you're following the Ten Commandments, but because he is your God. The God that used his word to create light by simply saying, let there be, is the same God who says, you are mine, and it's true. And so let the law hit you like that. Let it completely dismantle you, knock you over flat on your back, so that the only thing that you have left to do is to look to Jesus. Uh, the second thing that I, I want to address is, uh, one of you said, as I hear the teaching of the, the commandments, and particularly the sixth commandment, there are a number of things that I realize about my life are messed up, and I can't really go back and fix them. And that's the truth. In many cases, you can't. There are mistakes that we have made against God's law, sins that have offended God that we can't go back and fix. And they may not be against the sixth commandment for some of you, it might be somewhere else, but, but I think every one of us can think back to something that we wish we could undo, but the effects are permanent. And that can leave a lot of guilt in our heart, unless, of course, we remember Jesus, who comes to us and says, I'm not asking you to fix yourself or to fix it, I'm coming to you and saying, I fix you. I have already fixed you by dying for your sins on the cross and giving you my righteousness, and I will ultimately fix you by making you perfect, completely recreated in a new heaven and new earth where you will live forever with no sin or corruption, and I am currently fixing you. I'm growing you in your sanctification to love your neighbor better. Maybe the point of all this is to say we have to let God draw our eyes back to him. It's so easy as we look at the commandments to think about ourselves, but they should actually lead us to stop thinking about ourselves and to think ultimately about Jesus. So thanks for sharing those thoughts. If you do uh, have thoughts on any sermon that I have, I want to hear them. I'm not just preaching to the air. I'm preaching to you, to people. And uh, I want to find truth in God's word with you. So let's get into the seventh commandment then. 
Um, the seventh commandment, like you heard, is you shall not steal. If someone says to you, watch out, or heads up, which by the way is like one of the dumbest things that English speakers ever say, like they usually say heads up when the thing you should really be doing is putting your head down, but that's beside the point. When someone says heads up or watch out, what are they doing? They're warning you, right? They're letting you know there is something that is dangerous that you cannot see. Did you know that Jesus said watch out? He said watch out about three things in his ministry. Uh, He said that we ought to watch out for, first, false teaching. As one really wise person said, most, excuse me, the best lies are mostly true. The best lies are mostly true. False teaching does not come to you very obviously saying, deny Christ. It very often sounds like a really good teaching because it probably mostly is. But it robs you of one little piece or it's just slightly off-center. And that trajectory over time leads you away from Christ. And so we ought to be careful. Uh, It's very common in our society to say, well, what's the real difference between any of the churches or even any of the religions? Watch out. False teaching you often don't see. But this isn't a sermon about false teaching, so let's move on. Jesus says to watch out for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, you know, is doing one thing and saying a different thing. Or if you want to go etymological on it, it literally comes from a Greek word that means actor. What's an actor? An actor is somebody who does an action but doesn't actually mean it for themselves. And you can see how this might be something we should watch out for. How quickly we can go through the motions, do the right actions, but our heart is not in it. Especially for Christians. We know what many of the right actions are. Show up for church, give your offerings, pray your prayers, act like a good person. We might do those things, but is our heart in it? Watch out. This isn't a sermon about hypocrisy. It's a sermon about the last thing that Jesus said to watch out for, greed. In that text that we looked at, uh, that, excuse me, that's text in um, Luke 12, Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Greed is sneaky. Greed is something you have to be told to watch out for because you very easily miss it in your life. Uh, Just to give you a couple ways to think about this, um, almost all the other sins against all the other commandments, you kind of know eventually that you did them. Like, it's not like you commit adultery and you wake up the next morning and you're like, oh my goodness, you're not my wife. You know what you're doing. You might fall into sin in the heat of the moment, your sinful nature takes over, but you know what's going on. And this can be any number of other sins, right? As a pastor, I, I talk to people about their spiritual lives, and I hear people who confess trouble forgiving other people, who struggle with lust, who struggle with making God's word a priority in their life, or respecting an authority figure, who struggle with gossip, who struggle with coveting, all these sorts of things. But I, I have yet to hear somebody come to me and say, Pastor, I really am struggling with greed. No one says that. Because greed is dangerous, and we very often don't see it. Just to depress you on this a little bit and help you see how greed is something that we miss, Jesus gives us an insight in his Sermon on the Mount that we read earlier in the service. You remember how the text went. He starts by saying, don't store up treasures for yourself in heaven where moths, or excuse me, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth, store them up in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy. And he finishes by saying uh, that you cannot serve both God and money, right? But in the middle of those two teachings on money, he says this interesting thing about your eyes. Did you hear it? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
What's he saying? Well, in the context, we understand that he's saying money makes us blind. Money makes us blind. Money has this amazing ability to ruin the way that we look at the world so that we actually are not perceiving reality as if we were wearing really, really darkly tinted sunglasses all the time. So how is that the case? Well, let me give you a couple of generic examples, and then I'll give you a couple personal examples. First of all, maybe some of you have heard me quote this study before, but it was amazing to me uh, that a group studied people and what they thought they needed in their income to live a comfortable life. And so they, they classified people based on how much money they currently made, and they asked them, how much money do you think you need to make in order to be comfortable? So they asked a group of people who made about $75,000 a year, what does it take to make you comfortable? What did you have to make? That group said about $150,000 twice what they made. They asked a second group of people who made $150,000, but what would it take for you to be comfortable? And they said, about $300,000. And then they asked a third group, and I think you can tell where this is going, who made about $250,000 a year. What would it take for you to be financially comfortable? $500,000 a year. Now, we can look at that and say, like, that's objectively crazy. <laughs> that's not how it should work. But money makes us blind. We miss the objective reality of what it takes to actually live a comfortable life because money makes us blind. How about another one? Um, there was a study done that, that studied how much money it takes to be happy. Like, they studied a happiness index, and they said, at what point are people actually happy with the money that they have? Like, regardless of what they perceive, they might think they need twice as much as they make, but what is objectively the reality? And they found the number. They said that your happiness continues to go up with your income until you make about $100,000 Canadian a year. And then it plateaus and even starts to decline as you make more. Money can make you a little bit happy, but only to a point. And then it actually starts to make you less happy. Money makes us blind. We tend to think that we could make a little bit more and we would be a little bit more happy, but oftentimes that's not the case. Can I get personal though for you? Um, so recently, a number of unexpected expenses have come up in our family, things in the thousands of dollars. And uh, I managed the money in our house and I was just fretting about it. Like I was, I was worried and my, you could see it on my face and my wife, bless her heart, she's asking me, are you okay? And, I'm worried about how are we going to pay for this stuff until I, I take a little while to look at our budget, and I realize that all we need to do is cut back a little bit on our discretionary spending, and after a couple months, our cash flow will be fine, and we'll be back to where we were. And you might be thinking to yourself, you privileged, and then you probably don't say the next word. Because all I was worrying about was cutting back a little bit on some extra money that I could have spent on stuff that I want, not even stuff that I need. Are you kidding me? And you're totally right. I am a moron because money makes you blind. I was so worried about money when I live in an upper middle class house with some discretionary income to spend. I mean, my goodness sakes, how corrupt and sinful am I? I'll give you one more. I look back at my bank statements from before I was the pastor at Cross of Life. I was a pastor for two years in a dormitory setting, um, and I looked at my bank statements, and I, what I realized looking at them is I was not very good at giving my offerings my first two years as a pastor. I did give offerings, but I usually did it as an afterthought every couple months with the surplus of money that I had. And I thought to myself, what on earth was going on there? Like, I was a pastor. I'm supposed to know better. And here I am giving my, like, ninth fruits offering, not my first fruits offering. 
Well, I thought back on it, and I remembered that what I thought at that time was, um, well, I'm in debt from my student loans, and I need to pay those back, and I'll be generous when I'm done paying back my student loans. And so I just took whatever extra I had after I'd paid back some of my student loans to give God and his church. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, that's a bad excuse. <laughs> right? God doesn't say, be generous when it's convenient for you, when your cash flow is right, when you're not in debt. He just says, be generous, give, as your Heavenly Father gives. And, and as I meditated on it more, I realized that we kind of all do that at all sort, sorts of stages of our lives. Right? Pre-student loans, you're a broke college kid, right? Maybe you're in high school, you're barely making any money. You're thinking to yourself, well, I can't be generous now, I, I barely don't make anything. <laughs> You get to my stage that I was talking about, and you're thinking about paying off student loans. You get a little bit after that, and you're thinking about saving for the next house, or the first, excuse me, the first house, and you're, you're saying, I can't be generous now. And then you get into that house, and then you got kids, and you think, well, I got extra mouths to feed. I can't be generous now. And then the kids start to grow up, and you think, well, I got to help them. Maybe they're going to school, or maybe they're thinking about moving out. I should help them. I can't be generous now. And then they move out, and you start to think, well, finally, now I can spend some of my money on myself, so I can't be generous now. And then you get a little bit later in your life, and you get to retirement age, and you think, well, I got to retire comfortably, so I can't be generous now. And then you retire, and then you're on a fixed income, and you say to yourself, well, I can't be generous now. You see how we do this? Money blinds us. It makes us not see reality. And so Jesus has to say, watch out. And so I want us to all do this because this will just be cathartic and helpful. I want us all to take a deep breath and say, money blinds me. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Money blinds me. It does, every single one of us, whether you make $75,000 a year or $750,000 a year, it does this to us. It changes the way we look at our spiritual reality, and we have to acknowledge that as we look at the seventh commandment. So let's move on to the second point. Um, the Bible says, oh, excuse me, let me get to my right thing here. Uh, after Jesus tells this parable about the, the watch, or excuse me, as he says, watch out, he tells a parable, and I want to read that parable for you because I think it's really helpful for us. Uh, Jesus tells this parable that the ground of a certain rich man yielded abundant, abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So Jesus tells this parable about this man who is rich, um, but there's something really interesting about the parable, and maybe you caught it as we read it. Do you realize how self-focused this guy is? The entire parable is him talking to himself about himself. Let's look at it again. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is how Jesus told the story, so bear with me. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, are you sick of this guy yet? He is so narcissistic, so self-focused. Why? Because money makes you self-focused. Money makes you think about yourself. Uh, let me show you how this happens. If you're a younger person, and you're thinking about money, you're often thinking about what's your career path? When you think about what you're going to do with your life, do you think about a job that will make you generous to other people or a job that will make you a lot of money for yourself? 
Do you think about how you can make a living that can allow you to support a family by yourself? Or do you think about how to get a living so that you can support yourself and have a whole bunch of extra? Or or let's say you're kind of in the middle age range. Uh, As you think about your money, do you think about how you can spend it on yourself and all the things that you're capable of doing now that you're making a little bit more than the entry-level income? Or do you think about how to continue to live at a lower standard of living so that you can be generous with others? Do you think about living in a smaller house or buying an older car so that you can have more money to give away to others? Or if you're a little bit older, as you think about retirement, how many of us would think, you know what, I could retire at, let's pick an age, 65, but I'm going to work until I'm 68 and use those three years of salary to just give away. And I'm going to live out what I would have retired on at 65. I'm not saying you have to do that, but how many of us think that way? We don't. We don't because money makes us self-focused. It draws our attention away from our neighbor and onto ourselves. The third point. In the text from Matthew that Jesus tells us, uh, gives us, he says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, maybe you remember that when we read it earlier in the service, it didn't say mammon, it said money. But that's because the translators of the New International Version obscured what the, de- the text really says here. The text really says mammon. Mammon was a personification that that culture had for money. They actually saw that money was so powerful over a person, it was like a divine entity that could control the minds and hearts and actions of a person. And so they gave it a name, Mammon. Jesus says you can't serve both. You can't serve the true God and the God of money or Mammon. But it's so tempting, isn't it? A God gives you status and security, and that's what your true God, Jesus Christ, does. He gives you the status of being acknowledged and loved and brought in by the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, not on your own merit, but on Jesus' merit. He says that no matter what anyone else thinks of you, it does not change what God thinks of you. And he gives you security. Of course, ultimate security in the new heavens and new earth coming for you to live forever, but even now, he says, I'm going to give you your daily bread, and I'm going to make all things work out for your good. But how often we throw that away for the security of mammon and the status of mammon. The money that allows us to pay the bill at a certain thing so that people think highly of us. The status that we have enough money so we don't have to ask mom and dad for help anymore. The status that we don't have to worry about saying, I can't really afford that right now. The status of being in circles with people who are of higher status than you. Money often gives us this idea of status, and it also gives us an idea of security. If I have enough money, then I'll be okay. I'll retire comfortably. I'll always be safe. I can live in a good neighborhood, etc., etc. Money has this unique ability to become your God, and Jesus identifies that. He says, you can start to treat money exactly like you treat God, fearing it, loving it, and trusting in it above all things. And isn't that the case? Sometimes we fear money. We fear not having enough. We fear what will happen if our money goes away. Or we love it. I mean, think about the last time you got a raise. Didn't that give you a little spring in your step? It's not that that's wrong, but isn't that a, a little picture of the love that we often have for money? Or you trust in it. You say, if I have it, I'll be fine. If I have none, then I should be worried. But money doesn't just have a unique ability to become your God. It also has a unique ability to show you who your God is. Jesus says this in that text from Matthew, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't say where your treasure is, there your heart usually is. No, he says there is a direct straight line from where your treasure is to where your heart is. If he could say it in modern terms, he'd say something like this, your budget reveals who you worship. 
So what does your budget say? If, if somebody else looked at your budget, would they be able to see that you worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or would they see that you worship something else? Or here's, here's one that I just thought of on the, on the walk over here. If you don't have a budget, what does that say about you? It might say that you think you're your own God. That you don't have to put any constraints on yourself to make you spend your money in a way that is actually beneficial for other people or wise. You just get to do whatever you want. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money has a unique ability to show you who your God actually is. And so I'd encourage you to evaluate yourself and ask, where do I spend my money easily? Where do I not even have to think twice? Isn't that the thing that I love, fear, trust in more than the true God? Money has an amazing power, as you can see from these four points that we've filled in. So let's talk about how to break its power. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the famous series of books and movies by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this story is the use of a ring as sort of the focal point of the story. Now, if you remember the story, this ring, this one ring to rule them all, is the ring that everyone desires because it gives them amazing power. But if you have it, it'll totally consume you. If you use it too much, it'll take your mind over and lead you to act in ways you never thought you would. And so the, the premise of the story is that they need to destroy this ring because it is consuming people. They need to throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. So I, I went on a little bit of a, a quest, pardon the, uh, par pardon the pun, to, to figure out why this ring was the thing. And as far as I can tell, Tolkien picked a ring because he said he wanted it to be something that was small and insignificant and yet totally consumed people's lives. He didn't want it to be like a, a, a cache of gold or a huge castle or something big and amazing. He wanted it to be something small. Then when you look at it objectively, you say that there's not much there, but it has this amazing power. In many ways, money is the same thing. How much power does money have? Well, objectively, not that much. It can go away in an instant. Your bank can say your money is worth whatever they want it to be worth. Like the, the dollars in your bank account, they're they're relatively insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But how quickly they consume our life. Like a ring. But as soon as we wear it, as soon as we start to lean into its power, it starts to consume every thought, every emotion. And so God says, throw it into the fire. Now, thankfully for us, that was something that God actually said in the Old Testament. Give your offerings and we're going to burn them on an altar. In the New Testament, we don't. We give our offerings to church or to charity. And that money actually gets used to benefit people. But the principle is the same. God would have us throw our money into the fire proverbially. Prover excuse me, proverbially. So what does that look like? Well, I think you can have uh, two ways of thinking about this. Um, well, actually, let me give you one more point before we get there. Uh, the, the ring in the story um, is called by most people who interact with it the precious Right? It's, this, it's this precious little thing that they have to have in order to feel okay. Um, and actually, you know, if you know the story, that it consumes one of the characters. His name is Gollum in the story. He can't help himself. He, he loses all of who he is, consumed by the precious. Um, the only way that you're going to be able to throw the ring, so to speak, or the money into the fires of Mount Doom is if the ring is no longer your precious. And maybe you know where this is going, that ultimately for us, if we're going to be able to break the power of money, we have to have a different precious, so to speak. So, of course, you would like to think that Jesus would be that precious, right? But the truth is that 
for us, Jesus is not the precious for us. You might think to yourself, wait, hold on a second. That doesn't sound right, but let me explain. I think we like to believe that if we gave enough of our money away, we would love Jesus more. But the truth is we will never love Jesus enough. We will always be affected, consumed by money in some way. And so actually the power to break money's grip on you does not come from you thinking so highly of Jesus, but it actually comes from you realizing how highly you are thought of by God. The Bible talks about how we are God's special possession, a word that in Greek literally means like this thing that you work all your life to achieve. The Bible says that Jesus endured the shame of the cross in order to achieve the joys before him, which is you and me. You will never make Jesus precious enough in your life to completely break money's power, but you will start to experience that breaking when you realize how precious you are to God. So two practical ways to see this happen. Um, The first is that you would give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. An Old Testament command for how we give was, first of all, the tithe, 10% of your income to church, and then about 13 to 15% of extra giving to the poor and needy in your community. The average Old Testament Hebrew was giving away about 25% of their income. That, of course, is not binding on us in the New Testament, but what is binding on us is the cross, where Jesus gave up his life, not just a tenth of it or 25% of it, but all of it for us. The Bible says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. God would have us give sacrificially, give to the point where it hurts, like it hurt for Jesus. So, very practically, if you want money's power to be broken over you, give in a way that hurts. Give in a way that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Give in a way that when you you see the amount of money that is going out every month, to bless your church or to bless your community, you say, I'm not sure. I think I can do that, but I need to trust God. How often we give just what we can, what's enough, rather than thinking, can I give the way that Christ gave? And secondly, have healthy eyes. Have healthy eyes. Think back to that text where Jesus says, if your eyes are healthy, That word that is translated healthy uh, comes from a root of another word that means to be generous. And so what Jesus is kind of saying here, he's making a double meaning. He's saying if your eyes are generous, then you have light. What do generous eyes look like? They look like eyes that are searching for someone to be generous to. Is our heart constantly looking for a way to be generous? Or are we trying to avoid eye contact with those who need us? As we think about the ministry of the gospel here together, Are we thinking about how we can expand it? We can extend it? Are we hoping that no one's going to ask me about how much I give my offerings? Do you want to break mammon's power over you? Give sacrificially and have healthy eyes. So let's move to how to follow the seventh commandment. After all of this, seeing what money does, seeing how to break it, what's a principle for us to walk home with? And it's a progression. Kind of like we talked about when we were in the fifth commandment, we said that we would do no harm, and then we would actually do good, and then we would do good at cost to ourselves. Do you remember this? There's a similar progression in the seventh commandment, and it comes from this verse in Ephesians 4. Paul says that anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do you see the progression? It starts with don't steal. 
Right? Don't take something that belongs to somebody else. Don't cheat them out of anything. Don't extract money from them using any sort of, of financial mechanism that is undue to you. Don't always try to get a deal from everybody, but treat people fairly. Be generous with the things that God has given you. Which leads us to the second piece, work. Work for the things that you have. Don't just expect to get a handout, but work for it, and work for it ultimately so that you can give. God would have us think, not how can I get more for myself, but how can I work for things in order to give things? So let's do some practical considerations and then we'll wrap up. I know it's convenient for a pastor to talk about money because my salary comes from the offerings that go to this church. So let me be very clear. First of all, all of our books are open to anyone to see. You can see at any of our budgets from the last couple of years. You can see exactly how much money I make if that's interesting to you. But I'll tell you this, that if the offerings to our church go up, it does not affect my salary at all. In fact, the offerings that you would give would go to spread the gospel in more places, not just here, but across our country. Um, and then I would also just encourage you to think about how you can actually bless a whole lot of people with your offerings. Instead of being worried that you're going to be taken advantage of, think, how can I actually do something really positive in this community? I know I challenge you to do this every year. I'm going to do it again. I think it's time for us all to consider what it would look like to increase our offerings by 1% of our income. You might be given 0% right now. What does 1% look like? You might be given 11% right now. What does 12% look like? But I think if we do that, we will find some amazing blessings. We're on the cusp of a really cool stage in our congregation's history. Hopefully moving into our own facility in the next couple of years, being able to reach out to our community in a new and exciting way. Can we back that with the finances to make it smooth, to make it easy, to do things that other churches can't do? That's up to you, between you and God. But what God says is to remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us, and that as we do those same things for our brothers and sisters, we will bless them as Jesus has blessed us. So let's pray for God's strength to do that. God, thank you for the many resources that you give us. We repent for the ways that they blind us, uh, to thinking about ourselves, to... Um, to planning for our own futures rather than thinking about what it means to invest in your future and treasures that do not get destroyed. We ask for the humility to look at our finances and see where our gods are, to destroy them, to throw them into the fire, and to find the peace that you will provide all things that we need. Finally, we ask that you would make this congregation a generous congregation. I already see it among them, Lord, that they are generous, but, but as you said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, you are already generous, now finish the work. Help us to finish the work, to double down on what it means to be generous, and to trust you, even in an economy that is volatile, in an inflationary time where dollars are worth less, to trust that you will provide what we need. We ask those things in your name. Amen.